Welcome back to Now, the podcast celebrating the variously compiled world of pop. In each episode, a variety of fabulous guests and I explore favourite compilation albums, as well as considering how these collections shaped pop culture and now fondly stand as time captures for our own musical and life milestones. I hope that you will enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the show through your favourite podcast provider and join in with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Joining us for this episode is Will Harris. Will started working as a sales assistant in our price in Kingston in 1985 and says it is probably still his favourite job ever. After travelling the world over 1989 and 90, Will went back to college to do a music industry management course, which first led to work experience at Vital Distribution around the time of Sleeper, The Divine Comedy, Placebo and significantly Flat Eric. Then to BMG, managing the Camden budget label, as well as working on a couple of big Elvis projects and Rick Astley's greatest hits. Whilst at Demon Music, Will launched the 100 Hits compilation range before moving to Pius and The Orchard, which led to meeting Pete Pafides, who had his great idea for a label but needed help making it happen. And of course, that led to the wonderful Needle Mythology Records. And as well as this, Will is currently working for the DWP, as a work coach, but he says the less said about that, the better. Will, welcome back to now. Thank you. It's a very, uh, yeah, very comprehensive intro. Yeah, less said about the last one, better. So let's talk about Needle Mythology then. Uh, this uh, wonderful venture that yourself and previous guest Pete Perfides have ventured into. So how did this come about? Yes, it's uh, came about, I had a meeting. Uh, we've got a mutual friend, me and Peter, but a mutual friend called Dermot who uh, works for Blue Raincoat, formerly Chrysalis. And he said Pete had this idea for a label, and it was initially uh, Pete and actually um, Bob Stanley was the original meeting, but Bob got very busy, had a child, very busy, and St Etienne was beginning to pick up again. So he sort of pulled away. But we had this initial meeting with someone from PS at the time just to discuss the idea of a, of a label that would be primarily reissuing records, LPs, uh, of bands that hadn't actually come out on LP at the time. So obviously a lot of stuff from the 90s and so on was put out on CD only or very limited runs of LPs. And that was the initial idea. Pete's brilliant with artists and really good with so he, he had a lot of knowledge and he didn't have a lot of knowledge of putting a record out. He had a lot of knowledge of management, artists, direct direct contact with artists rather than management, actually, um, which was really helpful and really sort of, I don't know, I just saw this idea that if you had the two things together where he's the one that's sort of a ring it, obviously other people have had input, but he's kind of a ring it primarily. And then other people could actually help him get these records into the market. And I knew how to get a record into the market. Now, and off we went. Pete had had a couple of early ideas, um, just the first two records, and obviously he wanted to make Stephen Duffy one number one because the label name is taken from a Stephen Duffy song from another album. So it was all kind of fit, fitted in right. Stephen was brilliantly helpful, and the other first one we released was Ian Brody, which was like a lost classic kind of. It's Ian Brody being much more introspective and different to what you'd expect from the Lightning Seeds. Um, and I didn't even know about that record. So again, Pete helpfully pointed me in that direction and then off we went. And then yeah, so it's sort of, it, it's been um, lots and lots of fun, lots of hard work. It hasn't made us very much money. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly from a purchaser point of view, you can see 
the love and the attention and the you know the the detail to attention that's gone into these releases and particularly putting some really well loved but perhaps forgotten albums back out into the marketplace again oh thank you that's very kind i think yeah our perspective has always been make the music sound as as good as possible and everything else will sort of fall into place we tried to use a less traditional designer again sort of made a decision early on that we'd work work with people that we liked working with because we've been around long enough to I know that sounds I don't mean <laughs> it's not a load of people I don't like working with but just work with people who are really nice to work with and will work with us and I used a, an old friend literally a school friend that I got in contact and worked out that he was a I knew he'd done lots of drawing and stuff and I just asked him what else he did this was via Facebook and he said like, I do design work and I do websites and stuff so talked to him and he was really up for it as it so Things like the Tanita Tinker. I mean, the first two records, the, the sorry, the Stephen Duffy one, he chose the picture, and the second one, the Ian Brody, was an offshoot of this, the original photo shoot from the original album, but a different kind of picture from that series. And then James, the designer, worked around it. But we've sort of the the thing has always been to less is more, not to try and overfill the stuff with ephemera and all that stuff but try and be quite, try and make the things look quite clean like I think you see that in the Finn Brothers one mm. um, which you know we, we got sent so much stuff we could have used and we ended up almost taking it right back to basics and just making it look really pretty and there's a lovely thing where their dad wrote the Finn Brothers dad wrote um, comments on all their uh, tracks from the demos so he would give the marks out to 10 um, and that's been we use that and that's like a lovely thing that's direct from there always go back to basics black vinyl we're mm. sort of not doing over colored we're not sort of chasing the chart positions or any of that stuff it's nice to get a chart position but we're not really bothered about all that stuff so we just want to make them look as nice as we can there is a wonderful um clip that you guys put up online <laughs> of um neil finn Oh, good. Um, I thought you were going to say the one I did, where I couldn't <laughs> open the box. So, yeah, the new um, one was lovely. And I think it just brought it home, actually seeing, you know, the delight in Neil opening up and seeing the product and just that kind of care and attention that went into it as well. Yeah, it's really touching. It is genuinely touching. He, I think he, I think you forget how, when something's never been on vinyl, that record came out in 95. I think if something's never been on vinyl and, you're, and it's using your, in that case, it was his drawing on the front cover he'd hand you know that was a painting so him to then see that blown up in its full glory I think it really yeah I think it was properly an emotional moment and they were on tour as well with his sons and everything so yeah I think there's that that side of it you forget I think even if you watch the other one the Tim Finn one it's quite mm. interesting the compare obviously we didn't Tim Finn was in New Zealand so we didn't have someone handing it to him but the Tim Finn one is very much you can see his he almost gets quite emotional even though Neil's the sort of long chatty one the Tim one is almost like, I loved making this record. And you can see he almost gets a little sort of tear in his eye of like, blimey, you know, this was a long time ago and it's it's a special moment. I think you forget that, that for these people, it was probably a long, I, I know they did that record quite quickly. But for some of these records, it's sort of a period of time, you're writing the songs together. It's They've got their own emotion, obviously their own emotional attachment to it, separate from the fans. And you kind of forget that at times. So that has a lot of the joy that we've got from doing the record has been that. Whipping Boy was like that, even though obviously one of the members isn't involved anymore. The other three were so active on Twitter and all over the sort of social stuff because they were just so chuffed that people were still interested in something they did all that time ago. They probably didn't get the attention it quite deserved at the time. It's that connection between the fans 
and the artists and the product. It's it's just a lovely synergy for me, just reminded me of of that importance of of music and how it kind of pulls everybody together. Music was always played in our house, uh, mainly from the radio. My parents didn't have a massive record collection. My dad was really into the Beatles and the Carpenters and Bread and those kind of 70s, Fleetwood Mac, you know, yeah. and ELO, very sort of 60s, 70s. I mean, they, they really loved trad jazz and, and all that stuff. My parents are old enough to sort of go through that trad jazz period. But my dad carried on sort of listening to those kind of things. But there was always a few compilations around. There's the Big Wheels of Motown. It's a big record in our house, which is just sort of 20 absolute Motown yeah. classics. And my first compilation I remember buying or getting as a Christmas present was a KTL compilation called Music Explosion. Mm. And me and Mark would have talked about it in the <laughs> past. Um, it's... Yeah, it's chock. It's chock full of it's. I think it's 20, 20 tracks. Yeah, it's ten. It's, it's yeah. classic KTL where they've squeezed the tracks. They did squeeze them onto the album, didn't um, they? It's got some absolute gems on it. But I do specifically remember scratching the Bay City Rollers track at the time because my sister loved it so much. I didn't want her to listen to it. I thought they were. My sister was a proper, briefly a Bay City Rollers fan. I briefly scratch, literally put a scratch mark on the end of it so that it couldn't be played, which is a horrible thing to do, um, considering I would say that me and my sister get on really, really well. But I don't know, yeah, some, some strange thing I did at the time. I mean, given the size of the tracks were so small, that that's quite a surgical <laughs> operation. <laughs> it was a <laughs> I can't remember what I did it with, actually. I was, uh, I've still got the record. It's, it's, it just literally goes, as it goes around. A remix as such. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, now obviously I really like the Bay City Rollers. At the time, yeah. I thought they were, you know, they were, they were an anathema. <laughs> yeah. It is, I mean, you know, um, we've spoken about it with guests um, often, how these KTL and Ronco albums just were in so many households, but yeah. you find so much of that early listening for people. My sister had one called, is it Goofy Greats, that came around, I think, I can't remember if it was a year later or a couple of years later, and it was all supposed to be sort of, it was more sort of, not comedy records, mm. but things like, it had Sugar Sugar on it, so it must have had lots of bubblegum pop and mm. things like that, but it had um, Snoopy versus, versus the Red Baron, and it just had, yeah, so not, yeah, they weren't comedy records, but they were just fun records, I guess, yeah, Goofy yeah. Great, it had, had a sort of uh, Tarzan-esque TV ad, if I remember correctly, but yeah, Music Explosion was big, I mean, it's worked that year, that came out, I got two records for Christmas, and they were Elvis's Golden Records Volume 1, mm. um, which has this half Sun, half RCA, and Music Explosion. So I had this sort of, had a nan who loved Elvis, and it was that period of, I guess I was listening to lots of rock and roll revival stuff was just in the charts, things like Mud and Shwadi Wadi, and all those bands were in the charts. And my nan was like, you don't want to listen to any of that rubbish. You don't <laughs> listen to this. This is, this is the king of rock and roll. And I didn't really understand that Elvis was still alive at that time. In my head, I couldn't get, I was still only seven or eight. I couldn't get around the idea that there was someone who was sort of, obviously he looked very different, but that sort of thing. And then weirdly, the Elvis now, obviously Elvis Golden Records Volume 1 had a picture from the 68 comeback special. Mm. So all the songs were from the 50s from the 50s on it, but the picture was laced with the leather on. So it was all of, everything was wrong about yeah. it. And then obviously the whole thing didn't quite compute. 
until yeah. a few years later, obviously, when he died, it all started falling into play. I didn't get later Elvis records. So I had that thing of listening to pop music in the charts, but also had this thing where I thought Elvis was incredible, but not really liking his modern stuff at the time. Does that make sense? <laughs> oh, only yeah. being, being really obsessed with the 50s stuff. No, it does, Mars. because growing up as well, it's funny looking back at that early 70s, the way the Elvis estate was handled, because I can think back to, you know, my first introduction to Elvis was through compilation albums that my parents had as well. There was an Elvis Love Songs one. You never really knew, because Elvis was just... Working at what era they were from. Yeah, yeah. The one you review know. is played with Love Me Tender. You know, those Love Songs comps, you just you get the full raft of eras because they're all just love songs yeah. so you get it gets really confusing you get the big orchestral things and then you get these little love like love me tender is obviously just a guitar part it's really simple song well not simple you know what I mean yeah but um, it was just that kind of ethereal kind of existence of Elvis it was just there <laughs> certainly I, I was quite young kind of mid 70s you know but it was just um it was probably later on kind of early 80s that I started to become aware of Elvis and the kind of history, yeah. because it was yeah. just as you say, it was all thrown into the mix together. Yeah, they didn't. They, the people I went over to BMG at a later in life, I found out that there was a sort of level of embarrassment a bit about that period in terms mm. of how they treated his legacy. Like they, I think they licensed a whole compilation to Arcade or someone and it yeah. sold it went on to be like a million million trillion seller yeah and I think the whole BMG or RCA at the time were just like what are we doing why aren't we doing this yeah. you know they, they have that they have those moments where they just realize that they've yeah. just they're sort of treating it with, with not with enough respect so, and yeah, actually it's an interesting time you mentioned it you know, at the beginning that you were involved in kind of big Elvis projects as well. It must have felt like a reclamation of kind of reclaiming the estate and the kind of the heritage of Elvis in some ways. Yeah, I think it's an, it's an, yeah. I worked on the number ones thing, and I was lucky enough to see a really early clip of the little less conversation thing. Like when a friend of mine sent it from America, and, oh, what do you think of this? And are these footballers famous? And I was like, oh my God, this is massive. You know, this is potential. This was even with that before they'd even remixed it. Yeah. I was going, oh my God, this just sounds so perfect. And um, yeah, I worked on that, but a couple of years beforehand, we'd put out a thing called 50, Elvis 50 Greatest Hits. Mm. And I'd compiled it, and I compiled it in chronological order. And I put a couple of things on there that I won't really hit, things like Mystery Train and mm. stuff that people love. And um, the boss at the time of BMG, I went mean, big boss of BMG, said, You don't put, he's like, on Greatest Hits albums, you don't put things in chronological order, you put the big hits at the start. And he wasn't, obviously, I get what he's trying to say, but it's mm. like with Elvis, you do it in chronological order because yes. the time, the sound, the sound. I was like, no, we're not doing that. And he was like, no, you must do this. And he was like the chairman of the whole company. And mm. by luckily, my boss stuck with me and said, no, we're right, we're doing it this way, and it yeah. worked. And obviously, so that's all. That's all. I was more, all in a way, I'm more proud of that compilation mm. because we did. We were more involved with the the TV ad. I had to sing actually on the TV ad. Um, because <laughs> the idea of the TV, yeah, I know exactly. The idea of the TV ad was um, that it was Elvis is everywhere because it was at a time when the estate wouldn't do any, wouldn't the estate wouldn't give you any footage. So the idea we went out and filmed people sort of singing along to Elvis songs, but obviously they could, the sound didn't come through, so all the visuals came through, and then we had to go in the studio and overdub it. Mm. So yeah, I sing always on my mind, and I'm. Tr- Tending to be a builder holding a mug that says I love Elvis and it sort of pans out and I sing always on my mind. Luckily I've got a deep enough voice. I just about get away with it, but no one believes that I did that. Everyone just oh, goes, wow. 
<laughs> no, obviously, there's no copy. No one's got a copy. It was on uh, Beta Max back in the day. It's probably uh, in an archive somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's... It does exist. It's true. It happened, I promise you. Oh, that's fabulous. Just come back to that point about chronological compilations, uh, or you know, best ofs, because... Uh, you know, the best of itself is an entity. And actually, yes. if you look at some of the biggest sellers, I'm thinking of Queen's Greatest Hits, Abba Gold, for example, they're not chronological. I'll be honest, and I'll say it right now, I like chronological best of. Of course, well, that's because we're... Because <laughs> it makes yes. sense. It you know? makes sense, but it, I think sometimes it makes... I get it where where the sound isn't doesn't change that much. Mm. I can You can sort of get away with it, but where it's something... I mean, you go from, when you're going from... Heartbreak. I think we started with "That's All Right, Mama" is the first track on the when we did the Fifty Greatest Kids, and then the last track is "Way Down." The sound difference is so big you can't. I don't think you can just mix those up. No. I think you can get away with it with the love songs one. I suppose. But yeah, I, I'm a I'm a definitely a chronological order. <laughs> but I suppose though it kind of ties to compilations and nows and various artists because you often hear a track that you know from a say a now album. And you expect a song to come next. So, for example, I go back to yes. the very first Now album. If I hear You Can't How You Love by Phil Collins, I am fully expecting, is there something I should know on the radio to come next? Because that's next in my head. And actually, something like, you know, Queen's Greatest Hits. I first probably got to know Queen through the Greatest Hits album, like most people of a certain age. So you hear Bohemian Rhapsody. The next song is always another one bites the dust. So it's it's how we then have those perceptions of music through sequencing, yeah. I suppose. Definitely, definitely. I think that, yeah, 100% that thing where you hear, yeah, when you hear the next song. Yeah, I'd, I'd get with Queen, that's probably 75% of people who, <laughs> who, who who listen to Queen. You know, I think that, yeah, they've probably got an audience of yeah. millions of which, yeah, half of them are probably and greatest hits volumes one, two, and the and the box set with the with the extra volume. In oh it. yeah, that yeah. Well, not talking about volume three. That was uh, <laughs> that was in Wycliffe Sean and the likes. Yeah, that was interesting. Get now nine your own personal hits file featuring Jackie Wilson, Nick Kamen, Benny King, Five Star, Curiosity, Kill the Cat. And the number one from Boy George. 30 top chart hits at your fingertips. Now that's what I call music nine. Let's move on to the album that you've chosen to look at, which is now That's What I Call Music Volume 9. Yeah. Uh, it was released 23rd of March 1987, number one for five weeks. It was sandwiched between The Joshua Tree and Keep Your Distance by Curiosity Killed the Cat. Can you have a more 1987 run of albums at the top of the charts? Probably well, I didn't realise it was between The Joshua Tree. That's interesting. Yeah. So I definitely was... Right, that fits now that I definitely was still at our price in Kingston then about to move to Richmond, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah. when the Joshua Tree, the Joshua Tree had a, a wide spine, and so everyone remembers. Yeah. And when we, at our price, we had the under the counter, a massive thing on the counter where when a new lease came in, you loaded it under there. You had your ones you put out on the shop floor that you didn't sell. And then you had the, the other ones you loaded in. And then they basically sold those and they came out, like when people came into the thing, you pulled those out. And when we loaded those into the box, 
by the end of the by halfway through the day it was empty. Like, you know, yeah. hundreds were gone. Like that yeah. was like that wide, and then suddenly it was empty. It was such a popular album. It was, it was, it was incredible. And actually, you know, you know, because you always like to contextualise a, a now compilation and where it was, and it's always fascinating the tracks that are there and the tracks that aren't there for various yeah. reasons. And we'll come to that as we go through the album. But yeah, you just forget how huge the Joshua Tree was. Ginormous, wasn't it? it was, I think it bit caught people off guard in in terms of that step up from from the unforgettable fire. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it was massive. Obviously, see the same for Kudos. It killed the cat as well. <laughs> yeah, maybe not quite as big. They're, they're not, here, maybe not. Aren't they? they are on the now. Yeah, not yeah. The big, big, and we'll the come big to them. And actually, smash. it was you know, I mean, obviously for a debut album to be in at number one as well for keep your distance. But uh, yeah, so you were our price then. What would you have been listening to yourself in 1987, <sighs> spring 87? Um, I'm still listening to things from the years previous, things like Prefab Sprout and. Anita Baker and things that I'd heard of in the shop. Martin Stevenson of the Dainties, I was a mm. big fan of. A mixture of things that other people played in the shop and classic albums as well. I had a sort of, yeah, there's a few oldies as well that I've listened to. But um, in terms of things that were around at the time, yeah, I think maybe slightly on the India side, more guitar side of pop yeah. music. So the track list, um, interestingly, often the the springtime now release often comes from the back end of the previous year. And that's very much the case on Now 9. There are, there are seven number ones featured on this, and actually four of them come from the back end of 1986. Um, and we kick off with one of them. We kick off with, I think it was the Christmas number one. But it wasn't and, being used in an ad or anything, was it? it was well, just... no. It had been featured on an arena programme on BBC Two an arena programme about animation and they had shown a short clip that had used this track and as was the way with limited TV channels in 1987 uh, 55 million people probably saw that clip and all immediately decided that they must own Rate Petite by Jackie Wilson as they say by popular demand Christmas number one yeah I remember it I remember yeah I remember thinking this is yeah it's around obviously we get on to Benny King later there was there were things being in the charts from from adverts, from Levi's ads and so on. But this wasn't one of those. It was definitely the animation. Yeah. And uh, done it. Yeah, definitely. And I remember it being on quite a small label at the time by quite a small distributor. So they were, you know, they they had to go for it. it was, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think they did, I think Charlie tried to do the same thing with Nina Simone, my baby just cares for me, mm. maybe the next year or something. So they made a, another one of those plasticine animation videos. Yeah. It wasn't probably as quite as successful, but it was still a big hit again, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was big, wasn't it? It was huge, and and again, though, contextualizing that 1987, as you say, there was still a big attraction to those 50s and 60s tracks through TV advertising, and if it was marketed properly and branded properly, you could get one of those big old hits back into the charts. And this is a great yeah, example definitely. of it. Um, it got to number six, in 1957. So, which you know, you think that's like 30 years previously, 30 years from now, back it was yeah, 1992. It <laughs> Goodness. Didn't they say at the time it was the longest ever? Wasn't it? Some didn't it hold some record for the longest yeah. ever gap between being entering first entering the charts and yeah. then being a number one. Yeah, 
Is that right? I think it might have, or has that been beaten since by Kate Bush or something? I think Kate I Bush think, has just Yeah, been... I think as we speak, Kate Bush may have broken that one. Um, yeah. See, that's the thing, though. 1985 still seems really relevant to me. It's like, <laughs> oh my goodness. Whereas 1957 sounded like the past, but yeah. Of course, um, it was written by Berry Gordy as well, wasn't it? Written by Berry Gordy. Just to pull back on Elvis again, um, when I was digging around, Jackie Wilson had had a heart attack in 1975 and had gone into a coma. And allegedly Elvis covered a huge proportion of his medical bills. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. No, nope. oh, that is really interesting. I know he was a big fan. Yeah. Um, so. Obviously, Jackie Wilson had that kind of operatic and that mixture of vocals that Elvis probably... Elvis obviously had a big range, but not a range like that. Because Jackie yeah. Wilson had a different... Oh, that's really interesting. Oh, so it makes me warm to Elvis more now. <laughs> so, yeah, and from a sequencing point of view... Record One Side One is always a kind of big opening track for any new album. Yeah, I, th- I works, think this works quite well. Yeah, it's big. Yeah, it's it big. does. It's a, it's a. It's yeah. I mean, it's over. Probably overplayed now. I think Sweetest Feeling and so on probably get more play now. But yeah, yeah it's big. It's a smash, isn't it? And that links into the second track, which is Mental as Anything. This did have a film link because this was Crocodile Dundee. Of course, yeah, which is one of the biggest films. Was that one of the biggest films of the year? Was it 86? It's yeah. 86. Right. Yeah. yeah, it was massive, wasn't it? They're only UK hit. I remember speaking to, I might have been Andrew Harrison, about how at this point in the 80s, in ex- eh, Australia, sorry, uh, still seemed very far away, pop-wise. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one, isn't it? When you go, I lived in Australia for a while and all those, well, I worked in a record shop and all these bands, when I got there, which was two, three years later, a lot of these bands had sort of solo, had artists that had then had solo success from those bands. Men at Work, I think, the lead singer mm. Men at Work had solo stuff out. And obviously, I think, yeah, it was still, it's still otherworldly. And I always think as well that those bands, I think obviously this is a bit of a one-hit wonder, but mental as anything. Yeah. The bands that did break it big, like NXS and ACDC and so on, by the time they made it as far as England, they were so well rehearsed. And so they played like hundreds and thousands of pub gigs and so on in in pubs and um, bars in Australia that they were kind of, they were already the full the full ticket, as it were, by the time they got here. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's it's an interesting one that how, yeah, it was it was definitely from, felt like it was from another world. I think the Man at Work single for the same reason obviously it was more about australia mm. as such but yeah i think that sort of concept of it being other world is is, is true but yeah i mean definitely crocodile dundee i think put australia back <laughs> when <laughs> you visit did. australia it did yeah, <laughs> yeah this and isn't really how we live because i think right about that time was paul hogan did you have a channel four show yeah yeah and it was pretty bad as well it, it was rotten <laughs> It was, it was, it was, yeah, it wasn't funny at all. And it was like, it was a bit like, do you remember, it's funny, isn't all that period of slightly strange comedy that was sort of purporting to be, do you remember, is it OTT, the adult version of Tiswas? Oh, yeah. That was sort of just quite sordid in places. And and I think uh, the Paul Hogan show had a bit of that as well. That sort of bit Benny Hill at times. Yeah. No disrespect to mental as anything, but it was a it was obviously a huge hit. Um, it's a huge hit on its own. I think it. it, it I think um, so. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I think it still gets played as well. You know, I think it gets viewed separately from the film now. Yeah, for, yeah, and, for yeah. Abs- well, it, it's a it's a great radio song. Let's be honest. It's, yes, it's got that sound to exactly. be honest. Definitely. Now it's so track three, simply red, and it's it. Yeah, this was the lead single from the second album, Men and Women. Looking back now, I think there was probably a lot riding on it. Well, look, it's number eleven. This track which I'm guessing probably wasn't Warner Brothers 
big expectation. Still get something a little bit big hits, still get a lot of radio yeah. play, don't they? Now I think the well, interestingly, I saw Simply Red supporting James Brown on so before the first album came out, they did mm. two nights at Hammersmith Odeon yeah. supporting James Brown. Money's too tight to mention was was coming out around that time. And you could mm. tell there was something going on. They were yeah. def- like the, they were definitely the second night we said we ought to go and watch them properly. Like the first yeah. night we were probably in the bar listening a bit and then going in. The second night we were like, they sound like quite an interesting band. Yeah. So yeah, I think there was probably was a lot riding on it because the, the first album, although it did really well, it didn't actually have lots of hits, did it? I mean, I'm wrong there. I always think of uh, Money's Too Tight and the big one, Holding Back the Years. Yeah. Maybe there are others on there. I think though there were... They were still finding their way as a chart act at this point. And, you know, because now because of stars, we think of Simply Red as being this huge global, you know, this entity. But it took a while to really connect. It took, for example, if you don't know me by now, in 1989, off New Flame to really connect them again, you know. Um, oh, I forget they did all the covers. Oh, they I did a lot of covers. If you, yeah. if you don't know anyone else, one of my favourite songs ever, the Harold Melvin one. I yeah. just always think, I don't dislike the superior one, but it's it, it's an unnecessary cover. It is. is. and But but you can almost imagine the record company saying, we actually need a big song here to get you back into that profile. And of course, you know, a cover can be good for that. But, uh, but you could see it, you know, they were coming because they did... Did they not do every time we say goodbye as well? Yes, yeah, yeah, that's very good. Did. Was that which, Christmas? Which maybe Christmas, Christmas eight, seven. Yeah, yeah, they were definitely going down that road and throwing in <laughs> a few covers. This is pre night nurse, obviously. Um, you must have like loved those meetings where it's like, oh, they're going to ask us to do another cover version, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, but um, again, from digging around, um, quite sadly, I noticed this was Alex Sadkin's last production. Um, oh, no, project really. because uh, I didn't realise it was as early as 87 Alex Adkin was killed but uh, yeah so you can hear it's it's a wonderfully glossy production yeah right? definitely definitely it's, big, it's, yeah, it's a big sounding record definitely yeah So another band who were leading off with their second album was Erasure. The first track off The Circus, which was considerable breakthrough, was Sometimes. It's massive, isn't it? What a big record. I think I think um yeah, I think people don't I don't think Erasure get the respect they deserve. So just it's almost like their the longevity has almost mm. made people forget how how big they were. Plus obviously what he'd done before. Yeah. I think people, I don't know, it's a hard one. I, did, I think the big record, I think this is, yeah, it's a brilliant, brilliant single. It's so catchy. It's hook, it's hook laden. Well, he knows what he's doing, doesn't he? You can tell that in the early oh, yeah. load stuff. You can tell yeah. all the way through the Yazoo stuff. It is. Um, it's, um, I, I love the, the acoustic guitar that drives us as well. Yes. Because, you, yeah, know, yeah, it's you know, they're often described as the electronic element. Obviously, you know, that's Vince Clark's big thing. But actually, you think of the video, you think of the acoustic guitar. It's a wonderful sound. It really is. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely. I'm It's interesting looking again. It's produced by Flood. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. So. Yeah. So what kind of took me by surprise was this was a follow-up to Ola Moore, which hadn't even charted. <laughs> I mean, that is UK buying public once again at their finest. That's <laughs> so weird, isn't it? So did the so dollar covered it? Dollar covered it in eighty eight and actually had the hit with it. And uh, where did the dollar one get to? I, That's so weird. I just think of Ola Moore as being a hit. Uh, yeah, no, and and it and it caught me. I went back to the old Guinness Hit Singles book and I thought oh, it must be there. No, who needs love like that was a hit later when they were 
promoting the pop album when they put it back out and remixed it. But you think, you know, such an omnipresent song like All The More wasn't even yeah, a hit. God, I know. It's, so, yeah, the record-buying public, yes. They, they often often do their finest. They really do. Yeah, so, yeah. But there we are. Number one in Spain and South Africa. There we go. There you go. Wow. <laughs> and then number two here. And then we hit another one. Do you know, I was going to say Robbie Neville, One Hit Wonder, but he's not technically a One Hit Wonder, but he pretty much is, isn't he? What's the other one then? Ah, <laughs> tell me. Ken Bruce would probably be able to tell you if his notes in front of him. Um, but no, he actually had three UK hits. He had a track called Dominoes. Oh, um, yes. No, that was quite big, I think. Dominoes that was, was, maybe, yeah. maybe that's only in the 20, but that, that rings um, a bell now. Yeah, definitely. And one that, you know, you, you it's called What's It To Ya? Which I'm not, I'm not even going to go there. But Sorry, that one passed me by. The I think, is a brilliant record. Yeah, it's of an 80s sound, but yeah, mm. I think it's a great record. I think I noticed, you know, I've got two young children, a 10-year-old and a 6-year-old, who obsessed with pop music or K-pop, actually, at the moment. But they also love high school music. And I noticed, I always look and see who wrote the songs and stuff. I noticed that he wrote quite a few of the songs on that mm. as well. So he's always had a secondary career, hasn't he? As yeah. A sort of, yeah. writer for, for Disney stuff and so on. It's a great pop record. He had, a, he had quite long hair, didn't he, Robbie Neville? He had, he, he had a lot of hair. The video, again, actually, this whole compilation album, there's some cracking proper mid-80s videos, if you go digging on YouTube. A lot, an awful lot of hair, an awful lot of soft focus, um, and I think it's probably all rounded up in, in Robbie Neville, to be honest. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I can see it. It's almost a bit Kenny G-esque, I think. Yeah. Head. He's a bit sort of... Yeah, sort of slightly tight curls sort of got flowing down. It is one of those, again, it's got 87 written all over it. Now, what says 87 more than 1976 or 1997 <laughs> or any other year is You Sexy Thing. So this isn't from a film or anything, is it? This no. It's literally just this was... going through the archives and remixing it. Yep, yep. This may have been connected to Hot Chocolate's second best of or the first right, CD rings, best of that rings a bell I remember as well there was maybe slightly earlier but they reissued um, Heaven Must Be Missing an Angel by Tavares yes and that was a hit again so there was a few and then obviously yeah. later someone read to me our everything there's a remix of that as well wasn't yeah. there, by the real thing so there's a few of those kind of earlier songs yeah this was the ubiquitous Ben Lee brand who right. he that was your go to remixer. Great facts. Only song to enter the UK top 10 in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. What was quite interesting is the hot chocolate best ofs, because you have to get these right. So there was the in 1976, there was the greatest hits. In 1979, there was 20 hottest hits. There was then in 1987 the very best of hot chocolate. And then in 1993, their greatest hits. So, so which which is the one with the Malteser in between the lips? Is that the hottest hits? Because that would make sense. I'm going to have to look. That's the one that you see in charity shops a lot, which is great. The Malteser ad. Yeah, yeah, the Malteser one. <laughs> I can't find it now. But yeah, I think very, again, very underrated band, but definitely mm. a, I think the album's strong, but I think you'd always see them as a singles band. I think, I think my mum had a soft spot for Errol Brown. I think a lot of people, there's a lot of, Middle-aged women who found him quite an interesting. Is that a fair thing to say? I uh, know. I would. I would totally agree. Yeah, and certainly, if you look at any of the old top of the pops clips of Errol Brown, uh, they certainly played up to that. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, my mum fancied Telly Savalas as well, so maybe she had a thing about old men from that the, works. From yep. The, yep. from the seventies. <laughs> I think they're, they're an interesting band because they're not a disco band. Obviously, they've no. got that kind of guitar thing going on mm. a lot, but they also do have that sort of side where they can do the disco. There's more. What I'm trying to say is, there's more going on than was probably appreciated at the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, you take a track like No Doubt About It, for example. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is just a great, great pop song. Certainly, a a fantastic singles act. Next, we've got, yeah, It Doesn't Have to Be This Way, which was another breakthrough for the Blue Monkeys after was after it, Digging it, Your Scene. So is it the, so is Digging Your Scene off the first album and this is off the second album? Yes. So this is off their second album, which was titled She Was Only a Grocer's Daughter. Yes, of course. This is sort of Blue Monkeys going through their full anti-capture yeah. phase. Yeah. And I think this is... They did the one just after this. They did the one that got banned by the BBC. That's right. With Curtis Mayfield, which was because it was it was coming up to the actual election. I think was why it got banned. I don't think it was that political. But this one is a very political song. Obviously. Oh yeah. Uh, it's all it is. Is just like it has to be changed. There should be changed. It doesn't have to be this way. When you walk yeah. out the door, I just think about the lyrics. When it comes on the radio, whenever I hear this, the lyrics, I think. Did people really listen to it? Well, no, not, not really notice it that what, what he was trying to say, or was it too was it too nuanced? I don't know. It was dressed up in such a glossy nineteen eighty seven pop way. It's so subversive and so brilliant. And yeah. the, you know, basically, it, it probably did pass a lot of people by. No, but I think yeah, I mean, we talked obviously later, but sort of that, you know, like the the House Martins coming up. You know, there's mm. obviously they've got the two political yeah. political bands next to each other. But I think that's you can be very subversive in pop music if you're you know clever about it. I think that line about um, yeah, when you walk out the door, you're going to ask for more. I think it's really clever because people. It's yeah, it's quite subversive and quite like say if you if you make the production, make it all sound really upbeat and production upbeat, then people don't even notice what. what yeah. But then maybe that's not a good thing because. Yeah, well, yeah, I suppose, but it's, you're not, it's then you're not getting your message across. You're kind of missing it slightly, but it's interesting looking back now, actually, um, and as you see, it kind of sits next to the House Martins as well, who were obviously taking this Isley Jasper Isley song and really actually turning it into something quite quite prolific yeah it becomes almost like a gospel thing i don't yeah i remember not i remember hearing the Isaac just rising thing in the shop and thinking it was quite interesting like the Isaac brothers a lot like the earlier Isaac brothers stuff the more 70s stuff mm. and then i just remember thinking yeah, i quite liked it but it was very sweet sounding mm. and then obviously they turned it into a an acapella yeah, it's an interest. They turned it almost went full gospel, didn't they? And yeah. He's always had that side to him, Paul Eaton, where he can always bring a choir in at any point. Mm. Um, yeah, it's an interesting record because it sort of gets forgotten in the House Martins thing because it's a cover and because it's yeah. a Christmas, you know. Well, we do Christmas like an a cappella at Christmas in this country, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> do you know? <laughs> So let's move on to record one, side two, which kicks off with actually what was the debut single for Boy George, Everything I Own. Yes, debut solo single, isn't it? Which is a cover of a bread song, but in itself is a cover of the Ken Booth cover of the bread song, isn't it? Yeah. Which at the time, I think David Gates famously said he didn't really like the Ken Booth version. Yeah. But at the same time, it made him lots of money. But obviously, the original song, yeah, it's about losing his dad. So yeah. the, I think reggaeing it and making it a bit, even though the lyrics are still quite melancholic, but adding the reggae beat and everything and making it a bit upbeat. I think David yeah. Gates was 
is a bit like, what, is, what have they done to my song? Yeah, <laughs> and actually, it almost goes full circle here for Boy George as well, because this was after a period of kind of not a great time for Boy George, and it, this was oh, a kind right. of comeback for him. And it was Stuart Levine back at the production helm. I think it was produced at Air Studios. It was that reggae sound that people recognised. Definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was a direct link back to that. So, yeah, it's an interesting one for him to do. I mean, I love this, obviously, later stuff, like the Jesus Loves You stuff and so on. As a weird aside, we did a, I don't know, some of the Elvis stuff, we did a launch party, this club called Kitch Lounge Riot, Café de Paris in London, and uh, that people would come from shows and stuff and just sing songs. And about one o'clock in the morning, we were slightly drunk, Boy George came in and, and got on stage with a live band, and he did um, Love Me Tender. He didn't know that he had the words, had the lyrics in front of him. He didn't, couldn't remember all the lyrics and stuff. Yeah. But he was just incredible. I just couldn't believe it. He was not like, boy, George is about five yards away from me seeing <laughs> Love Me Tender. But he, he just sang it so beautifully. He's that, he's, he, I don't think he realises what an amazing singer he is. It's a great comeback. It's a great track for now as well. I think this was the number one single at the time of Now Nine being released. Right, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And it's Which on Virgin, always, I guess, as well. Yeah, so and that's always a great coup for the Now team, having that yeah. number one out there for their advert. <laughs> yeah, 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 and including this week's number one. Yeah. <laughs> it always helps. So the reggae theme continues with track two, which is uh, the ubiquitous UB40 yeah. um, <laughs> and Rag <Rattling laughs> in the Kitchen. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, UB40 were just rolling along, weren't they, at yeah. this point? From a muso perspective of the early UB40 stuff but I've got no problem with UB40 apart from the odd sort of cheesy cover no Um, and I I think later on in 87 they put out the first best of which obviously was like completely (laughs) jam-packed With well, is that the, is that best of volume one? Is that was the best of volume one, which the cream and white covered one with the picture yeah, all on it, right? Which kind of hung about, hung about the charts forever, I think. Um, yeah, it's in know, that sort of beautiful South carrying up the charts, start, isn't it? Yeah, where, they're fantastic servants to now UB40, you know, you know, by this point, you know, they had obviously it was hit after hit, so you were kind of guaranteed a good spot on a new album. Yeah, they probably must be one of the most ubiquitous now bands wasn't they because they're on virgin and they're yeah. just churning out hits they're probably on about 20 of them aren't they yeah. i'd have to ask mike mulligan he'd give me the he'd give mike, me the facts yep. and the figures mike, mike will him. know mike will know without <laughs> even actually having to think about it he'll, he'll just be able to tell us now next to that is gap band um, i just looked i looked this up i like, I like the song it's not I mean, my favorite gap band songs burn rubber on me but favorite mm. gap band here but this is actually their biggest hit it's I know. Number four, whereas they didn't even release, I didn't realise this as well, they didn't release Outstanding, no. which I thought was a hit. But obviously the Ken is a Kenny Thomas version. And then yeah. Oops Upside Your Head only got to number six. That's amazing, um, isn't it? <laughs> which is fine, because there's a lot of those hits, like Fatback Band, those types yeah. of songs that used to get played all the time that never actually got that high in the charts. Yeah. But I can't believe, I mean, it's a good song, but it's not an amazing song, do you know what I mean? It no. sort of chugs along, doesn't it? It's just no. got, it's got a great bass line. And I love their look, I loved all the cowboy hats and the... I love yeah. that whole look that Gap Band had, the sort of Earth, Wind and Fire meets the sort of South look they had. I really liked. But yeah, I, I um, one of those songs that doesn't go anywhere. So 
No. It's a chugger, it's a groover. We used to go to a few club nights, um, and Palais and stuff around this time, and this definitely used to get played. So is it one of those sort of yeah, yeah soul boy, West London soul boy favourites? Yeah, it is. I wonder if there was a bit of a gap in the charts, probably. Winter, Christmas, springtime, you know, um, yes. and it kind of filled it the filled it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now track four is five star. Yeah, still on a big one. Yeah. On a massive run, but again, I had to go back and listen to it to check, you know, to make sure I knew it. I, it's not one of the ones. Sometimes with songs, the title just throws it straight into your head, doesn't mm. it? Like um, Systematics and those, the big ones. And it probably was as big a hit. Number nine, it was the fifth of six top ten hits. It's probably not one of the most memorable ones. And I'm going to upset no. Johnny California, previous guest <laughs> on that one, because he did some fantastic <laughs> sleeve notes and carries a torch um, for Five Star. I feel a bit sorry for Five Star, because yeah. they were obviously the British Jacksons. But their dance routines and, and obviously being on, what was it, on Swap Shop or one of those things where they were... Yeah, they got the phone were, call, didn't they? Got, got the magic phone call, yeah. I think... Yeah, I think, and also there's, there was always, they were slightly derided for being from Essex, which I think mm-hmm. was a bit unfair. Yeah, yeah I've yeah. got a soft spot for Firestar. The hits are brilliant. So. It's actually something, you know, when you go back now and you go through some of the tracks, like Can't Wait Another Minute and Slightest Touch, I like Find the Time. You never hear Find the Time. Yeah, it's a great record. To put it into context, they won Best British Group at the Brits in 1987, beating Dire Straits, Eurythmics, Pet Shop Boys and Simply Red. Yeah. There, was, there was a market. <laughs> Yeah, that's the bricks. Not that's not the smash hits party. No, that's that's, yeah. that's voted by a record company and and yep. journalists and everything. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's worth remembering that and contextualizing just how big. I suppose for a yeah, they were massive. That album, yeah, still, still that was yeah. massive. Where I, I mean, that was a big cassette in our price. That was a big kind of cassette seller. Definitely. Yeah, props back to Five Star again. debut single for Helen DeMack and Shirley Holloman but we'll call them Pepsi and Shirley I have to say this was the first of four singles I didn't know that I can remember the next one which was Goodbye Stranger but after that Ken Bruce I'd be struggling I think <laughs> it would be if it was a, a three and a three and ten Pepsi three and, and ten Pepsi and crikey yeah it was huge it was obviously off the back of Wham you know yeah, you, I mean the, you forget wham, it was only it was, it was only a year past not even a year past since the final concert oh, that's right that's right I luckily went to um, I didn't go to Wham the final mm. but uh, Capital Radio did a was doing Help a London Child at the time, and they did a uh, two warm up shows at Brixton Academy. Mm. You had to queue to get the things. You had to queue outside the Capital Radio towers for, and they just literally announced it in the morning and go and queue outside the towers, and we'll, uh, you know, one ticket per person, and the tickets were two pounds each to see them <laughs> at Brixton Academy. But they luckily they gave two. You're allowed to buy one ticket per person for each night. So we, I didn't even queue. I didn't even queue outside Capital. Uh, but a friend of mine did. About four, three friends of mine went and queued and got six tickets. Yeah. So two of us went, well, three of us went one night, three went the other. It was the full, basically, it was the warm up the week before one mm. the final. But yeah, Pepsi and Shirley riding in the back. I'm surprised they didn't at any point get George. I suppose George was already busying himself by this point, working towards the next thing. But I'm surprised yeah. at no point they didn't sort of persuade him to. I know, I know, absolutely. <laughs> Get one off the back burner, pull one out of the archive. It was produced by Phil Fearon, I didn't know that. Yes, I can see that, yeah, yeah. yeah that's interesting. She's isn't one of them is now living in the Caribbean, isn't she, running a boat? St. Lucia, is it, I think? 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, running a boat business, boat hire business. And obviously the other one's married to... Um... Pop royalty now, isn't it, really? <laughs> <laughs> Pop royalty, yes. <laughs> Bananarama, trick of the night, number 32. Obviously I know all the massive Bananarama hits. This is another mm. one where I had to go and have another listen to. I knew it once I'd mm. heard it, but obviously isn't one of their absolute... Massive yeah. ones. It's not a stock acting water, either, is it? Well, no, I don't think so. Um, they'd had Venus, which I think had been hit prior to this. And it was, uh, I think it was True Confessions album, but I don't think this was a stocking and water in production, but the next one was. The, the, right. It was it's almost. Swain, Tony Swain and yeah, yeah. Swain and Steve Joey who'd worked with them before. Hadn't they? Yeah. The next single was I Had Rumour, and then it was just off, basically. It was like, <laughs> we're away. Yeah. And, and, and there was that kind of Stocking Watman run, to be honest. But yeah. have, you read, um, have you read the biography? The no, I would like to read it, actually. It's um, really good. I just think there was something about them, that gang mentality, I guess. It's, okay. yeah, just, and and yeah. it just makes them really interesting. And they lived through it, all, obviously, as well, just that whole period. Yeah, the biography is great. Um, I actually listened to the audio version as well, which is fab because... Um, they basically go off script continually. <laughs> I can imagine. It's, it's fabulous. It's just a lovely story of friendship, actually, more than anything yeah, else. Yeah, that's what everyone says. I mean, yeah, I must read it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great. Uh, right, so we're at the end of side two. Berlin, take my breath away. Big record. Yeah. <laughs> just keep thinking about Top Gun and everything. It was just massive, wasn't it? It was a hit subsequently as well. I mean, I think when Top Gun came back on the telly for the first terrestrial viewing, it bumped back up the charts again at the end of 1990. You know, we often talk about Giorgio Moroda for his disco records. Yeah. But actually, those, you know, he could really turn his hand to a big ballad as well. Well, hasn't he said that he thinks this is actually his favourite song or favourite melody or something? There's something that I've read where he said he thinks it's the most... Sort of earwormish thing, I think he's he's written. But obviously, with for the keyboards and everything, it's very oh, it's, weird. It's it's there. I keep seeing the video in my head of Kelly McGillis, and, and the, yeah. I have a confession here at this point. I've never watched Top Gun all the way through. I don't. I think people will be like, "What?" <laughs> I have seen Officer and the Gentleman, which I really enjoy. To be honest. Similar. If you've seen the video for Take My Breath Away... <laughs> you've seen the film. You've pretty much seen the film, to be honest. If you, <laughs> if you, oh, I've seen Danger Zone as well, the video. I was going to say that, yeah. If you watch Danger Zone video first and then watch <laughs> this, you actually pretty much have seen all of the film, to be honest. Yeah, it's been, um, big. But uh, yeah, I they mean, didn't have much of it. They didn't have a continued chart success, did they? They weren't like like rock set. Obviously, was were in um, Pretty Woman, but yeah. they had a sort of separate chart life, didn't they? Whereas Berlin struggled to actually yeah. create a, a create a separate career out of this, didn't they? I remember Smash Hits doing a big push at the end of '86 when this came out. Terry Nunn, who was the singer, did a lot of interviews and stuff like that, and she was relatively photogenic. There was lots yes, of other yeah. big big hair from the men in the background as well, but I can remember the name of the album was called count three and pray but yeah, I mean, that again right. yeah. if <laughs> a second pop master call if there was a three and ten for berlin no chance struggle i think those things that yeah we're at a period in time where records people had to buy the album because the single would get deleted and that would be the end of it yeah. and you'd you know the record company would force you into buying the album well, i guess the shotgun soundtrack probably outsold anything by berlin by i would know, imagine 100 so. to one i would um, imagine so I'm on record two, side one, and it's Freddie Mercury and the Great Pretender. Yeah, so this was just a total one-off, wasn't it? Yeah, At yeah. the time, it wasn't part of any, it wasn't part of 
any album, was it, or anything? No, later on in the year, he was doing the Barcelona duet. This, you know, there wasn't any Queen activity in 87, so this was, this was the standalone single uh, of, yeah. of The Great Pretender. And, and I guess it fits at the time, and he it fitted his persona, I guess, that sort of, you know, that idea that he was sort of someone low self-esteem but high, I don't know, you know, the, the, mm. the great, the song title fits Freddie perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. It's, all, it's all a stage act. I'm hiding behind everything and so on. I was just a guess as why he did the cover of it in the first place. Yeah, and you know, it's you know, with hindsight and looking back, there is a slight melancholy to it. You know, yes, this, definitely, you know, definitely, you know, kind of way it's presented. Number four. So obviously, the UK buying public. You know, you can always get a, always get a hit out of ready. <laughs> um, it's a song. I mean, it's one of those perennial songs, and it is actually a perfect match for Freddie yeah. Mercury when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, but obviously um, he just does it in a very overblown way compared to the... But then I yeah. guess the original's got that, yeah, it's still got that feel, hasn't it? It's not that, yeah. even though it's obviously done with guitars and everything, it's still not that different to the actual... Oh, no, no, it's not, it's not. And um, a song that's been around the block, obviously, as well, the Platters had the first hit, I think, or did they actually? No, they didn't. I'm looking back at my notes. Jimmy Parkinson. Surely <laughs> not. The ubiquitous Jimmy Parkinson in March 1956, and then the Platters. Now you think of it as the Platters. It's all yeah. Well, they they had the bigger hit, yeah, um, although yeah. Freddie pipped them by one point in the charts to number four. <laughs> um, so there we are. But um, the manager of the Platters, a man called Buck Ram, says he wrote it in 20 minutes in a hotel bathroom. Wow. And these good, things always amaze me when people say those things. Like that's a good just payback. Just them out in 20 minutes. You need something um, that's still being played. Oh, yeah. It was a double A-side in this country with only you. That's that's value for money, isn't it? I didn't even know that, actually. That's interesting. You know, double it's... Platters. So, yeah, he's going through his little rock and roll phase. Yeah. Oh. So, so, anyway, Pop Kids of 2022. Let's go from 1956 to 1961. <laughs> yes, exactly. Another Levi's ad. I another can't remember Levi's. the ad. Well, actually, both, wasn't it? It was in Levi's ad and it was... I did sort of remember the ad. But it was also from the film Stand By Me, which... I know. Was the film 86? Film was 86, yeah. Yeah, so it still had that resonance. Yeah. Because coming out on DV, uh, video. You've got, you've got the video of this, which they used to stand by me. Actors were in it. Benny King's floating about in a suit like a supply teacher at the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Amongst the actors. Scarily enough, at the time... When he did that video, Benny King was only 48. God, don't say things like that. <laughs> oh, no. I, went, I was working at, when around this time, it was a bit later, maybe it's slightly later, but when all the Travelling Wilburys stuff happened, and it always gets me, <laughs> people say that Roy Orbison died at, what, 51 or something. I, I was like, what? Stop, <laughs> stop, absolutely. Um, so, How old is Benny King when this video was made? Yeah, 40. 40. 40. God, they must have, he must have been really young then. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe I'm just being it's only 20 years later, isn't it? Well, that's it. I mean, it was only 26 years yeah, since, okay. since this was... But then, you know, that again freaks me out because I think 26 years ago from now was 1996. <laughs> oh, I, don't, I can't deal with all these things. It just freaks me out. I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to move on. I'm going to move on. I think it's an interesting one with the, the Levi's ads and so on is that they... They got not not worse at all, but they got started using more and more obvious songs. Like when yeah. I remember, like Sam Cooke, I hadn't really heard Sam Cooke, and it opened me up to a whole world of Sam Cooke, hearing mm. uh, what a wonderful world it could be. And then wanting to own that, you know, RCA release, that double best of Sam Cooke, yeah, and music and stuff. And you know, but with Benny King, it's like I knew the song anyway. I knew it. Yeah. And, Things like the Clash and stuff that they always start that came later. I think, yeah, it was later. Mm. But it's just like the Levi's ads have sort of run out of 
interesting and different things, I yeah. guess. By yeah. then. Not that I, I love the Benny King song, don't get me wrong. It wasn't an obscure soul record. Yeah. Um, this this was peak time, really, for the let's put an old song in an advert and get it back in the charts. I mean, we, yeah. we could do an entire podcast on that. But, <laughs> but there was so many. And I mean, for some reason, as we're chatting now, I'm just thinking of Commodores and Easy and a man going to a, a bank machine and taking out wads of money. And, you know, there, there was there was that advert. It's the bank. thing as well, isn't it? The, the Hollies, He Ain't Heavy, yeah. He's My Brother, which was from the Miller Line ad. That's right. So it's like... Yeah, there was there was a lot of old songs. There was a lot used. of it, and it always gave you those good top of the pops clips of um, wheeling out old pop stars and shipping them over and standing them usually in some sort of Brighton Island suit in the middle of a crowd. Um, <laughs> there we go. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Next to that is Curiosity Killed the Cat. Well, first first big hit. They did Misfire the Misfit previously, but that got reissued later on. But this was the biggie. Yeah. So is this the is this still their biggest hit? I think it is, yeah, number three. This, again, they'd kind of benefited from the post-Christmas rush because they'd released it December time and it had right. sat as a bit of a sleeper track and then took off into, into January. Vacuum, um, there's a post-Christmas vacuum. Yes. And you've got Ben Volpelli Piero. What was they called in Smash? It's Ben Unpronounceable Name or something like that. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the girls. Yeah, he had something, didn't he? That lots of people seem to like. Um, it, it yeah, was, were, it's a good record. The bass sounds brilliant on it. And, it's yeah, great. It's, it's a great aesthetic. It's a great sound. Stuart Levine on production. 1987 was was a year for Curiosity Killed the Cat. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's still a terrible name of the band, but it's memorable at the same time. What's next? So called the Nights. Communards. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I loved Bronski Bates. Communards was an interesting one, and he obviously felt he had to do something different, but it isn't mm. that different. More commercial, I guess, with the Communards. It's not the biggest hit, is it? But it's got it. It's still no, got that feel. It was. But it, all their biggest hits were covers anyway. Well, they? yeah, this is the thing. and actually, this was the Communards' most successful original track. Oh right, yeah, good. Um, what's the first single then? Um, no, there was You Are My World. Yeah, You Are My World, yeah. I love that um, record. Which, which is actually a great calling card. And you've got this that pretty much sandwiched between those two big covers of Don't Leave Me This Way and Never Can Say Goodbye. So this was the follow-up to Don't Leave Me This Way, so which had been biggest selling single of 86. Yeah, so they were expecting it to be big, but not yeah, as big. Just not as big, to be honest. Not as commercial. But yeah, it's still a good record. They're all, they're all good records. Oh, yeah, yeah. Richard yeah. Coles has obviously gone on to do lots of interesting things. He well. has indeed, yeah. But I love Jimmy's voice i think i love that strain that he put on it and mm. that kind of he never hid behind anything other than just this yeah. is me and i've got this yeah, incredible voice it's yeah different to anything else. yeah yeah i love it i love the dancing i loved everything about it. <laughs> ever seen that clip of where he interrupts the bu- busker in yes yeah over his amsterdam or somewhere it's just such a lovely moment of it's, the guy going it's you isn't it it's you <laughs> <laughs> it's me. just incredibly it's, unassuming so, yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. It's lovely. This track does suffer from sitting next to an absolute bona fide classic. Yeah, what an incredible record to... I mean, there'd been the compilation, London had released that compilation, The House Sound of Chicago, with which had this on it and was it love can't turn around yes sorry that's what i'm trying to think out so that yeah. came out before this as a hit and got to number nine eight or nine or something mm. and obviously it had vocals on it and it was more of a vocal record mm. and but then this 
Yeah, I just yeah. it's just a monster, isn't it? It's like I watched it. I watched when when said I was going to do this one. I watched the video again, which had lots of old, obviously old clips of dancing and yeah. so on. But yeah, it's it's an amazing. It's an amazing record. It just sounded subversive. It sounded different. It just seemed to land out of, out of nowhere. It was the beginning of also seeing the likes of the BBC having to then decide how are we going to do this because <laughs> this is <laughs> this is different, you know. Yeah, this is... I think those, you know, it did sound really did sound like the future. Oh yeah, I was in the shops and there was this definite when the reps used to come. There was this thing that house music it's the future house music, and we, you know, we were a bit dismissive obviously at the time because we were. <laughs> people working in shops thinking we were really cool but it sort of I like that that it still had a link to the past even though it yeah. felt like it was totally from the future yeah. but yeah it's like I mean everything that followed like Mars Pump Up the Volume and obviously S Express and just all the mm. British stuff that then followed it but I just yeah it's an absolutely incredible record I still don't know enough about Steve Stilk Curry no. but it was that kickstart of everything that was that was about to come and you know you kind of fast forward even a year to 88 and there's so much house music rhythm king totally picked up in fact we've got rhythm king track next on here as well but they were they were picking up that baton and you know there was that fresh exciting variation of house music coming from the uk yeah definitely definitely yeah it was um i i sort of like i say i was at the time probably slightly dismissive because i was into sort of old Mm. I was probably a bit of a rare groover and all those sort of records, all that sort of that period of Maceo and the Max and all those things that had come out yeah. that, that, that I, I loved. And I was slight, probably slightly dismissive, but it was all, in the end, it kind of it won everyone over in its way. I never got, I never properly got into rave or anything, but I love them. I love the songs now, but now I appreciate the music more than I did at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah, just on this record alone, it just sounds like it's from another planet. It is. It's just one of those breathlessly exciting three minutes yes <laughs> it is fabulous okay, you've heard a record on Radio 1 over the past few weeks called I Love My Radio here's the lady who sings it Taffy making her debut tonight where are you from? well I'm from South East London originally from Deptford where'd you get the song from? well we made it up like we produced it and did it in Italy but uh, I mean it's dedicated to all the radios all over the world what oh my Track six is Taffy, I Love My Radio. Now, in my copy here, it says Midnight Radio in brackets. Yeah. I think there was a Midnight Radio, there was a DJ Radio. There was different edits to this. That's right, yeah, that's right. I remember as well that it was. It seemed to be around for ages. There's a lot of records that just sat in our, when I worked at our price, that sat in the sort of 12-inch area mm. that, didn't, that sold a lot all the time but never charted. And then they would go in cycles where the reps or whatever would come in and go, right, this is the week we're going to give it a proper push. Yeah. And you'd sort of feel, and then this suddenly took off. If I looked at the charts, it was probably sitting at number 78 or something for about three or four months. And yeah. then it suddenly just went. And must have, yeah. Someone must have started playing it on the radio or something must have happened where they actually got got some traction somewhere. Off, yeah. off it went. Yeah, it's, it's of its time, but it's, yeah, it's a great record. But it's a terrible great, video, if I remember correctly. There's a terrible kind of like made on a cine camera type video of her walking around what looks like like a stock car race or something. That's right, yeah, yeah, stock car racing or drag racing or something, isn't it? It's terrible. What is going on here? It's almost like we've got got 20 minutes. Can we maybe just get... 
well, her name is Kathy, Kathy KLO. I mean, maybe just get her to kind of walk around some, I don't know, it's terrible. Worth watching, though, I would say, just for yeah, the Yeah, yeah, definitely. Terrible. I watched to be it again to, to have a look at it. Yeah, yeah, it's very funny. Number six. Actually, you wonder if it had been released late in the year, would it have been even a bigger hit? So is, is, a, yeah, is that a big summer hit? But then so is it Italian then? Is it Italian? Italian yeah. Um, right, having said sense. that, 87, you were getting Spania in there as well. There was yeah, a, yeah. A Spania Taffy clash. Now, now, Nick Cayman. Yeah. Had, another, had, another Levi's connection. Another Levi's, yeah. So, and had the big hit previous year, 86, end of 86, with a song written by Madonna and Stephen Bray called Each Time You Break My Heart. And this That's was the follow-up. Right. Which so is this was, a cover, isn't it? Is cover. Four Tops cover. Right? Four Tops, yeah. Right, okay, yeah. Um, so and, is that it? Is that his whole chart career? To, do you know what? There's probably to Nick Cayman fans more records, but to me... Yeah. <laughs> That is probably the end um, of of the kind of Nick Cayman um, discography. Um, I'll be honest, at the time I was probably quite sniffy about this as being a bit kind of poppy and rubbish, but I went back and listened to it. It's a pretty decent cover, actually. Yeah, yeah, I think it was a good cover. I think the original single is a really good single as well. Didn't he go on and have a career in Italy? I think so, yeah. He carried on making records, didn't he? Yeah. I think it's hard, isn't it, for those people that... Yeah, obviously he was tainted with just being a good-looking boy who sat yeah. in a bath. Is he? No, he's not the bath one, is he? No, that's it's not oh. the bath one. It's the it's the laundrette one, isn't it? He's so one complicated. All these the bath one is sorry. The bath one is Sam Cooke. The laundrette one is yeah. Don't remember yeah. what song is now. It's probably Sam one me. But he took his jeans off, didn't he, and put them in the. He was the laundrette while he sat in. Yeah, while he sat in his white boxer shorts. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, yeah, I think Cherry Red or someone did like a seventeen CD box. That's set. yeah, yeah, that's right. And I was like, <laughs> you know, the way you kind of look at it and go, how can there possibly be? You know, that that's a lot of remixes. But I think it. I think it's because he had a lot of records, a lot of hits, continued hits into yeah. Italy. So, and we finish off the last track on side three. I like Manhattan Skyline. I'm going to just yeah, say yeah, it's a, it's a good record. Yeah, it's no. brilliant. I mean, we hear those big ubiquitous aha songs on the radio. Manhattan Skyline never gets programmed, and it's a, it's an epic. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant record. I think that this probably, in terms of being on the now, not being, even it's a great record. The other ones, are, I think there's one of the ones around it, around similar time, which probably ended up, you'll probably tell me later, it ended up on hits five or <laughs> six or something. Yeah, but it's, it's yeah. obviously the one where, it's the one where Warners or whatever said to now, oh, you can have this one, the mine. It's actually a great record. Obviously, yeah. it's, it's got an incredible voice. Yeah, not as big a hit as all the others. No, it wasn't um, really. And and yeah, you know, well, can I touch on that interesting point? Because 87 was a year when there's only two now albums, completely. There's right. Nine and ten. This one um, in March and then ten in November, and actually hits hits was really picking up yeah. the pace at this point. Yeah, CBS and Warner, there's some artists on here that you know were making their kind of final appearance on a now because they were now pretty much been bagged um, right, yeah, by yeah, CBS and Warner. The follow up to this from Aha was Living Daylights, which was definitely right. definitely on hit seven um, as that big Bond theme. So yeah, there's that politics is interesting because. Y- there is an argument, and I'll whisper this, that 87 could potentially have been a better year for hits than it was for now. Across hit six and hit seven, some of the biggest artists of 87 were people like Terence Trent Darby, Whitney Houston, yes. um, the Bee Gees were back. Um, you know, the, 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 there was a lot of artists like that that were having big, big hits that there's no way we're going to be licensed to now. So I did speak to Mike Mulligan before this, and he said that this had something like 
it's got a lot of, I'd have to look it up now, it's like <laughs> 6 or 16, but there's, only, there's a lot of tracks on here are their only ever appearance on and now. Yeah. Obviously Nick Kamen and the one we're going to come up to next will be two of them. Yeah. Uh, and obviously there's one <laughs> at the end of side four, which none of us <laughs> which, even remember. But which, we'll talk about that. Yeah, let, let's come to that in time. But yeah, no, that's in some ways... You almost need to see the whole picture of now and hits together to get that full yeah. picture. Yeah, um, And actually, the kind of beauty that we've now got in 2022 is that those wonderful yearbooks that now are put yes. out, because actually the licensing war is over, Sony own everything, <laughs> <laughs> basically. So actually, now we're getting that fantastic chance of pulling everything together um, yeah. into these snapshot yearbooks, which are just fabulous. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that sort of joining it all together. So let's whiz straight on to the last yeah. side then. Sonic Boom Boy by Westworld. What a great record. I thought they were going to be massive. Fabulous. <laughs> they should have been. The style was there, the look yeah. was there, the sound oh. was there, and not much more, unfortunately. It's sort of got that rock and roll meets. 80s thing going on it's more yeah. than say the Stray Cats were yeah I love, I love this record I actually thought it was a bigger hit than it was it made number 11 which what? was there really I'm going to say I've said it before was there really 10 better records in the chart that week obviously there were because it is I suppose in the same way as Steve Silk Hurley it's a rush of pop adrenaline yeah definitely but I think there's lots of records I always think about the 80s having the big artists and then it has these sort of Records that sound different, like you know, Joe Box has just got lucky, mm. or What's the Color of Money by Hollywood Beyond. Yes, yeah, just being like a completely, yeah, like so different to anything you'd ever hear. Yeah, that, and this is another one, Westworld, where they, obviously they were trying to still sound a little bit eighties. Mm. That's just the general production at the time. If you haven't got another one to follow up with, it's really hard. Mm. I mean, obviously with Joe Box, is there two big big ones. But there, with the other one, with the other one I mentioned, I beyond them was never able to capitalise on that. And this, yeah, again, uh, yeah, just I thought, yeah, I love, love this. Too it love sounds this brilliant. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a brilliant, brilliant it's, song. It's brilliant. I don't know anything about them now. They, were they relatives? I know that the Generation X guitarist Bob Andrews. That's right. That's was there, right, yeah. and it was Elizabeth Westwood, who I think had been a model. If you go trawling across the internet, there's very little about Westworld out there. A moment in time. That's probably the best way to remember. Yes, definitely. A, a moment in time. So we're into what was what would be in inverted commas a bit of a rock side here. Starting of, with one of the biggest records ever well, made. Yeah, I mean we're certainly in that glam metal period here. I suppose in some ways it's a big coup getting Bon Jovi living on a prayer on a compilation album. It got to number four. Is it you give love a bad name first? Yeah. So so the, so yeah. you give love a bad name had been in the previous October '86, and then you've got this massive, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I can't. What can you say about Bon Jovi? I'm not the obviously the world's biggest Bon Jovi fan, mm. and I don't think I own any Bon Jovi <laughs> albums, particularly. No. But I did see them weirdly at, uh, at the. I saw them at the Astoria mm-hmm. when Cher was going out. Cher was in the audience. She was going out with Rishi Sambor at the time. Mm-hmm. We weren't that back, um, and they, yeah, they were incredible. Yeah, yeah, when you see something that close with like a big, big band. It is just life of its own, living on a prairie. It just exists in its own universe now, to be <laughs> honest, you know. It's just there. It almost sits in that same sphere as kind of Springsteen. It's that yeah, American yeah. dream song, you know, like Journey. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I think it's a story song, isn't it? About mm-hmm. 
Is it the one that starts where they used to work on the dock? And that's it, yeah. That's it, yeah. Right. So it always reminds me as well of, although I prefer the song, it always reminds me of Summer of 69 as well in that kind of story. Yeah. Like it's a story song, isn't it? So, it's Tommy and Gina. That's, that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's it. Sorry. That's, Tommy and Gina. I was, I was trying to remember there. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a great record. Desmond Child was involved as well, wasn't he? He was, yeah. yep. He was the co writer. And I believe that it was based on his relationship with Maria Vidal when they were going out. But um, he was he was a taxi driver. She was a waitress, which isn't yeah. But I don't know if I, I think Desmond and Maria doesn't scan as well in a song, <laughs> so they became Tommy and Gina. I'm sure Justin Quirk will come back and pick me up on that. But that's I'm going to go with that story, Justin. To be honest, <laughs> there we are. Now, for me at this point, I think there's a bit of a sequencing mi- mistake here because yeah, the next track, should have gone straight to Europe. Should have gone straight to Europe. The final countdown by Europe again. Well, we're going to come back to the one before. Yeah, we'll come to that in a second. Okay, I like it. I like it. We're, 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 we're rejigging the whole run. I'm just, I'm just, re- it should have been the final countdown next. Yeah, which, definitely. Yeah, the best non-Eurovision, Eurovision winner ever, as far as I'm concerned. It's just been amazing. Huge number one all across the world. If living on a prayer is orbiting the world, probably the final countdown is also orbiting yeah. the world. So Yeah, but, I mean, that is proper hair. That's proper hair. Oh, yeah. Video and everything. I met Jerry Tempest once in Harrods. I worked in Harrods. Yeah. Uh, and he, but it was one of those ones where you serve someone and then you look and you think, he looks like a rock star. And then you sort of, all your brain's kind of all putting it all together and you're looking mm. at the girl and you, that you had with him and thinking, he looks like a heavy metal rock star. He looks like someone I know. And then, you know, and then you get the card and it says Tempest <gasps> on it or whatever. And you think, oh my God, it's, it's him. It's actually him. Oh. Um, but yeah, it's just big, isn't it? You're, it's Everybody yeah, knows this song. this song, you know. So it was. I often think about that when people write those songs. Do they write them knowing? Do they write them and think, "Oh, this will be played in 1999 or whatever"? I know. Or do they just think, "I don't know"? Do they leave the studio and go, "God, that's massive. That's like the. That's like God. That people will still be playing this in 30 years' time. It'll be used as rockets take off and stuff." I, do, I often wonder that. If they, they. What I mean is, did they write it in order to yeah. know that it would be used in ads and stuff? What are these? Or are you oh, just no. writing it because you want to write it? Do you know, I always think of Don't You Want Me by the Human League, right? Because Phil Oakey has gone on record as saying, we didn't like it, we didn't want it as a single. It was the last track on the album, we just stuck it on there. Really? Do you know? I don't know, they must have known with this. Yeah, they must have known. Must have. That whole, that whole oh, thing, it's, just, it's massive, isn't it? It's absolutely huge. But, but, yeah, it's big. It is. is. So, right, let's go back. Sorry. Land of Confusion by Genesis. Third to five singles from Invisible Touch. Is this the video when they used the Spitting Image doll? Yes. Yes. Right, okay. So that was big at the time, wasn't it? It was massive, yeah. And they've got all those different people in there as well. Um, It's just, yeah, it's one of those big Hugh Padgham productions as well. Yes. Massive sounding, you know. Interestingly, I like a bit of chart facts. Mike Mulligan will be checking in on this one. Number 14. None of the singles off Invisible Touch made the top ten in the UK, whereas That's they were all top five in America. Right, so they were. So they had broken. It was a oh yeah, in America. yeah. And I mean, it didn't really matter because the album was huge. Genesis yes. were huge. It probably didn't matter. But you think back to those singles like Invisible Touch and Tonight 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 and throwing it all away. None of them made the top ten. It's amazing. I'm surprised. But at the same time, yeah, they, all they did was make people go. And, those are the sort of records that got played on the radio yeah. non-stop, and then people would go and buy the album. Yeah. You know, by the time you get to the third or fourth single, something you're just thinking, "Oh, I like four of these." There's only ten on the album. Go and, yeah. I'll go and buy. 
My sister was a big Genesis fan. And she'd sort of almost given up by this point. She liked Phil Collins, but she was more of the early years. So. Yeah. That kind of interchangeable years, you know, which year is it? Is it a Phil Collins year or is it a Genesis year? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kind of and then one change that, across exactly. the 80s. Yeah. He was obviously making them sound more like him anyway by then. Yes. Uh, yeah. So you get that. Yeah, definitely crossover. Yeah. As long as we've got a big long track on there, Phil, we'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> didn't get the long tracks on the Phil Collins albums you got them on the Genesis ones no exactly, exactly. Yeah. Over the Hills and Far Away Gary Moore I do know the song mm. is, I think this is Gary Moore's last appearance I think on it now it's it another is. fact that Mike Monaghan told me yeah yeah. Um, yeah I mean he had, he had quite a few hits didn't he Gary he did Prison yeah. Walkway is a big one isn't it yeah and the kind of stuff with Phil in it yeah the kind of Thin Lizzy that wasn't Thin Lizzy out in the fields which was yeah. pretty much um, as well so and the Chieftains are on there which is interesting on this one of course yes yeah, yeah. yeah it's got that little bit on it yeah yeah of course yeah. that so, makes more sense now but uh, yeah so uh, a number 20 um, right, now, so here, here's an odd one. Second last track on the album is the Ward Brothers and Cross That Bridge. Yeah, I didn't. I, did, <laughs> I had to properly have to look this one up. This, this, I, I mean, so a couple of facts. It was um, three brothers, funnily enough, the Ward Brothers, uh, Dave Dedick and Graham from Barnsley. It was produced by Don Was. I saw that. Yeah. Wow, I love it. I love it. I've said it before. I love it when now. Kind of hit the post sometimes. Yeah, they're not trying to put something on that they think is going to be a big hit. And it yeah, and I think I think we really. discussed prior to this the video, which is a proper <laughs> 87, 86, 87 hair moment of lots of hair moment. and there's lots of keyboard stabs yeah. and stuff. It's um, very eighty seven. And I went back and listened to it. It's not a bad. It's okay. Song. It's okay. Yeah, definitely. It's it's all right. I think thirty two might be where it, it, it might. Have. Yeah. You're stretching it, you're stretching it a wee bit, <laughs> to be honest. And we go with a big finish from yeah. the, the Pretend. Always nice to see the Pretenders on. And I don't actually think they were on many now albums, to be honest. Was this a this isn't a Christmas record, is it? It's not. But interestingly, you say that it had been a kind of 86 Christmas hit. Right. And I went back and listened to it and I thought, it's the little brother of 2,000 Miles. I think it's popped up on a few Christmas compilations mm. as a, not filler track, because obviously it's the Pretenders and it's a lovely yeah. song, but as in it's been, yeah, shoehorned yeah. into a few Shoe Christmas compilations. Um, when Warner Brothers haven't got anything else to... What can we put on there? Well, we've put Love of the Common People on there, so we can put him to her on there as well. Um, <laughs> those, oh, actually, I think we talked to Mark Weed about that, those Christmas, not Christmas songs. Yes. And yeah. actually, this is one of them, isn't it? Yeah, it's lovely. I love Chrissy Hine. It's another, it's there's another book I need to read. Uh, Chrissy yeah. Hine's autobiography. Yeah, um, but yeah, yeah. no, the pretenders are, I don't think they've ever been anything other than a brilliant band. It's great. It's it's a nice, now either finishes on a big song or a nice ballad, and actually, this is perfect. Does it well, to be honest? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> We've reached the end of Now Nine. The What's Missing context is interesting because it's got the hits thing attached to it. Yeah, there's obviously some artists that were big around the time that were missing because they literally didn't have anything out, someone like Whitney Houston. And then there's other artists that are just about to break 
like Terence Trent Darby. Yeah. Um, and then there's obviously big artists like Madonna who rarely appeared on now compilations and, and less so once the hits got going. I think yeah. Open Your Heart was a big hit. But Wet, Wet, Wet had a hit that's on, I think it's on hit six, is it? Yeah. That could have been on this. Yeah. Um, and there's a massive hit as well by, which is a classic Sony, or sorry, not Sony, CBS at the time, um, George and Aretha, number yes. one. Yeah. That stands out as I kind of would have, would have traditionally been on this, this yeah. compilation. Yeah. And that's yeah. again, like such a massive hit. What I was maybe going to just talk about as well, and it's something you touched on. No nine actually has got a lot of those brilliant one-off singles. 87 was quite a good year for that, like Robbie Neville and Sonic Boom Boy and things like that. And even actually across the hits, there's there's kind of handfuls of them because Hit 7, which comes up later on in the year, there's brilliant one-off singles by like Wax, Bridge to Your Heart and Scarlet Fantastic and various things like that. They're just, you know, they're just total one-offs. Yeah, massive records. I think they're, yeah, yeah. the Scarlet Fantastic record. I think people... It's one of those records that comes up all the time and people sort of always appreciate more now than they almost did then. And also we're just on the cusp in here, there's a hill we're climbing and we're just about to fall into Stock Aiken or Waterman territory. Yeah, yeah. And we've got obviously the coming of Rick Astley and then it's Kylie and there's a lot There's a lot of... Is Mel and Kim later in the year and it well, appears on one of the hits? Yeah, because that's interesting because Showing Out had been on now eight... By this point, respectable, which actually was was just in the charts around about this time of No Nine being released, uh, was held back for the hits album. So there was right. obviously a bit of wrestling going on. Yeah, we can sort of conclude that Now Nine isn't the best now, <laughs> but it's got but it's got lots of really interesting things, and obviously Steve Silk Hurley and Westworld yeah. World Track and Taffy. There's lots of one hit wonders, but also things that are leading to a future, like we said about the Steve Silk Hurley thing. Yeah. Um, and it's like I say, it's quite an important time for me, yes, personally, because I was sort of about to get promoted into different, you know, I'd been working in the shop for a couple of years at that level. And I, then I got promoted to assistant manager and, and then mm. went on that sort of journey at our price that used to go on where you'd suddenly go and work in about five, five or six other shops um, over the next couple of years. When you scan across No No Nine No Ten, which were the two big No albums for '87, and you look at Hit Six and Hit Seven, it is actually really heavily populated by a lot of singles that, yeah. that you know that looking back now maybe weren't big album tracks, but a lot of those big album tracks from '87 they just don't feature, but they actually therefore I think make these albums really great time capsules. Of yeah, singles. yeah, definitely. Definitely, like as we said, things like Westworld and stuff. There's those, yeah, the 80s allowed people to, yeah. I always say it's allowed people to do different things. You know, there's, there's a sort of opinion that there's an 80s sound. Yeah. Obviously isn't, and there's lots of sounds within the 80s. Yeah. There's a, there's and there was almost that kind of, kind of dashing and dare in 1987 with the singles chart you know they're really what you know we're talking about you know any year that can have everything from Star Trek and to you know Nina Simone to the Pogues and Kirsty McCall everything in there it was an amazingly democratic year I'm going to give a shout out to previous guest Ian Wade Ian's produced a wonderful um, playlist on Spotify which um, if the hits albums hadn't existed or because there was only two albums two new albums in 1987. Um, Ian describes it as now 9.5. <laughs> you know, the following year now actually did hit that, you know, that kind of beginning run of the three albums a year. And now 9.5, go look for it, it's brilliant. 
favourites from now nine then? I think I, I think we pretty much know what your favourites yeah, are. Yeah, I think I love the Westworld track. Um, do really not think the Erasure single. I really love, love that Erasure single. It, might, it brings back a lot of memories. Um, I love the House Martins, but not it's not my favourite House Martins track. So I really like the second House Martins album, and Me and the Farmer and those ones. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to say Westworld. Probably my favourite track. And I love the Robbie Neville track, like the Bon Jovi track. But yeah, I'm going to go Westworld as being my favourite track on there, just because it sticks out like a sore thumb. It's got a groove and a sound. It's very infectious. Will, yeah. thank you so much for joining us here on the Back to Now podcast um, and heading back to Spring 87 and uh, looking at all these wonderful, random one-off singles that made up this interesting year. Yeah, it's been really, it's been a real pleasure, Ian. Lots of memories, lots of fond memories of working in shops and dealing with, I would say, West London, West <laughs> London soul boys who probably didn't particularly like now compilations of buying lots of Alexander O'Neill records and so on. Yeah, so that's been lovely. It's been really interesting. And thank you for your thoughts. You, you bring back the knowledge that makes me remember what a great time it was. Oh, it's been great having you on board. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you to Will for joining us and don't forget to check out Justin Quirk's episode revisiting 1987's other Big Now album, Volume 10, for more big hits and even bigger hair. And also Will's partner at Needle Mythology, Pete Pafidis, who travelled back to 1988 for Now 13. All episodes available at your favourite podcast provider. Take care and join me, Ian, here again on the Back to Now podcast for more pop memories very soon. <laughs>